Welcome back to the Heidi Allen case, Central New York's most enduring mystery. I'm Ryan Zaldolando. In episode two, we got a confusing and unsatisfying conclusion to the Thibodeau brothers' trials, and no closure for Heidi's story. A reminder that you can hear all of the episodes in the series at wrvo.org or on iTunes. Gary Thibodeau was sentenced 25 years to life in prison for kidnapping Heidi Allen primarily because of evidence in court that he told two other men in a Massachusetts jail that he was involved in her kidnapping at the D&W convenience store in New Haven. Up next in court was Gary's older brother, Richard, who was facing the same kidnapping charges, but with a different jury and without the testimony of jailhouse informants. He was acquitted. All of Gary's appeals to get a new trial were denied by the end of 1999, and Gary was facing a long time in prison. Richard, meanwhile, had to figure out how to continue living his life in New Haven. The community had turned against him following the accusation, and we still have no idea where Heidi is. Now, let's move on to episode three, New Life. Everything at this point, for everybody involved, feels hopeless. It's 1999, and for Heidi's family and friends, It's now been five years without her, and she hasn't been found. Sure, we know her family found some solace in seeing Gary Thibodeau convicted, but there's nothing that could take the place of Heidi. Heidi's uncle, Jim Searles, showed an optimistic point of view following Gary Thibodeau's 1995 conviction. This is from the WRVO archives. We're closer. We're going to have to talk, or we're going to know more in a few days, I think. Somebody's going to have to talk. They're not going to sit in jail 20 years for... That's all we all know, where she is, that's all. That was in 1995, and four years later, there was still no new information about where Heidi might be. Let's step in the shoes of the Allen family for a moment. It has to be absolutely devastating to wake up every day, for years on end, and have no idea where someone you love is. Even after Gary was convicted and put in prison, he maintained his innocence and gave no clues about where Heidi could be. That has to be painful. With every passing day, The hope of a healthy, and more importantly alive, Heidi showing up at home becomes less and less of a possibility and more of a pipe dream. Now, here's a little reality to put things in perspective. Despite the tragedy at the D&W, the world eventually moved on. For years, the media covered the case from the initial story of the kidnapping through the trials of the Thibodeau brothers. Then, after a while, the media stops talking about the case. It's just the nature of the way things work. Other stuff happens, people move on, and that's it. But just because many people moved on doesn't mean Heidi's family got any answers. For the Thibodeau family, there were mixed feelings. Obviously, having Richard be acquitted is great news. From day one, Richard claimed his innocence and the court determined he was not guilty. That's great news in a vacuum, but the reality of the situation was not nearly as kind to him. I want to emphasize that I'm not speaking for Richard here, but the most visible shift in his life during this time period was probably the way he got treated by others. We've gone into detail about how small New Haven is, and it's a pretty safe bet there weren't many people in the area who didn't know who Richard was at this point. It doesn't stop there though for Richard, whose troubles outside his home had nothing on the things weighing on him mentally. Richard used the term rot to describe his brother's prison sentence. As in, Gary was just sitting, rotting, in prison. At this time, 
regardless of whether or not you believe the Thibodeaux kidnapped Heidi, Richard's point of view here has to be making him feel awful. Remember when Richard called the police the morning Heidi was kidnapped? So I called them and I told them I was at least there, you know, and they, so they said they were going to send somebody to come talk to me. Imagine being Richard and thinking if you never called the sheriff's office that morning, you'd still be living a normal life and your brother never would have been sent to prison or they would have never been caught. It depends who you believe. On top of that, Gary's wife Sharon was holding Richard responsible for Gary going to prison. Richard had such a hard time dealing with it that he kept it to himself, even hiding what Sharon had said from his girlfriend Teresa until years later. I think what bothers him the most, because at first, Gary's wife blamed him a lot, and he, he was really guilty. You know, I felt guilty about that, but I just told him, you know, it, it's not your fault. You know, you just, you got to get it through your head. I understand, you know, it bothers him, it bothers him to this day that, you know, but it wasn't his fault. You know, so that's what we do. Got to keep reminding him that it wasn't his fault that his brother wasted away in prison. That has to be tough to live with. And we know the relationship between Richard and Gary at this point was not a normal brotherly relationship. Not in the sense that they held any ill will towards each other. But with all of the things the situation has brought them, what is there left to say? As the appeals were going on, Gary's wish was to be a free man so he could go fishing and have a beer. Obviously, being in prison and away from his loved ones must have been hard to deal with. But one day it got much worse. Here's Teresa again. Gary happened to call that night and Gary was in prison. We had found out her parents had called. Gary said, hey, have you heard anything about my wife? And I handed Dick the phone. I'm like, I can't tell him. So it took the ad to tell him that his wife had passed away that day. It's just all that stuff, you know, he's had it, all this stuff on him. But we get through it somehow, I don't know how. Sharon Raposa Thibodeau died during surgery to replace an aortic valve on November 18th, 1997, in an Arizona hospital. She passed away when she was 33. She had heart surgery and never came out of it. That's a hard pill to swallow. No matter where you fall on Gary's involvement with the kidnapping, Hearing the news that your wife died over the phone while you're sitting in prison can't be easy to deal with. Let's fast forward to the 2000s. And on all fronts, things are not looking much brighter for anyone here. But, at some point, things begin to become normal again. As much as they can be, anyway. For Heidi's family, obviously you can never replace her, but eventually life without her became the way it was. For Lisa Busky, she used her faith to get through it. God's got my back and he's walking with me. That's, that's my foundation. That's what gets me through every day. For Richard, he had to live with all of the baggage that came with being the man who was arrested for kidnapping Heidi Allen. He didn't move away or anything. He just kept going in the place full of people who thought he and his brother had committed the crime. And speaking of Gary, he was still in prison and his wife had passed away. Life just was what it was. Now, I want to talk about a day in 2006. Nobody really remembers exactly when it was, but I think it makes sense to say it was around early April. All of the people we've spoken to so far aren't really involved in this part of the story. We'll now be introducing you to some people who got caught up in this too, 
so make sure you remember the next few names you're going to hear. This is a first-hand account from a woman named Tanya Priest, who's going to be a key figure in the story moving forward, so remember her. She introduces James Steen, who was known to his friends as Thumper, and Victoria West, who was Thumper's girlfriend at the time, and later became his wife. Tanya also talks about two of Thumper's friends, Roger Breckenridge and Michael Bohr. Included in this story is another woman, Jennifer Westcott. Tanya describes that afternoon in 2006 he spent at Thumper and Victoria's house. Thumper's cousin, Charles Carr Jr., was also there that day the story takes place. I interviewed Tanya, and she told me the story, but she asked not to be included afterwards, so I have to paraphrase. I would like to make it clear that this is Tanya's recollection of that day only. She started by saying that Thumper was not in a good mood that day, which went against his typical happy-go-lucky personality. She remembered it must have been an anniversary of Heidi's kidnapping, because there was something about her on the TV. Tanya recalled the conversation she was having with Victoria, and they started wondering what happened to Heidi. Tanya then said that Thumper snapped his head around and said, you want to effing know what happened to her? After that, the two women said yes to Thumper's question, and Tanya claims he went on to tell them what happened. She told me Thumper said that he, Roger Breckenridge, and Michael Borer woke up early the morning of April 3, 1994, and went to the D&W. Michael Borer had stayed in the van they were in while it was still running, and the back doors were left open. Tanya remembered hearing that Roger Breckenridge had went into the store through the front doors to distract Heidi, while Thumper went into the side door that would have brought him behind the counter, and he grabbed her. This story changes everything about all of the evidence we've heard so far. There are a lot more people that are going to be introduced soon, so let's stop here and understand what Tanya was talking about. She claims on that day in 2006, Thumper told her that he was responsible for the kidnapping of Heidi Allen. Her recollection was that Thumper, Michael Borer, and Roger Breckenridge took Heidi's body to a cabin in the woods in the town of Mexico, New York. The cabin belonged to the family of Breckenridge's girlfriend, Jennifer Westcott. As Tanya's story goes, the three men made Jennifer stay in the car while they took Heidi in the garage, chopped up her body, and buried her under the floorboards of the cabin. That's what Tanya says Thumper told her. Before we proceed, I'd like to tell you a little bit more about the men who were accused by Tanya. First, Thumper Steen. Then, we'll get into Roger Breckenridge and Michael Bohr. To provide more context about Thumper, I'll tell you something that happened after this event, in the fall of 2010. We're going to have to come back to this event later once we start talking about the legal implications, but here's a quick list of facts. On September 12th, 2010, James Steen killed Victoria West Steen and his cousin, Charles Carr Jr., with the shotgun. After many hours in a standoff with the police that involved negotiations, Steen surrendered to the police. As it pertains to the Heidi Allen case, it's not really important why he killed his wife and Mr. Carr, but this event paints a vivid picture of who he is. As for Breckenridge and Bohr, they are both lifelong criminals and have both been caught up with the police plenty of times in their lives. We'll hear more details about them later, but for now, just keep in mind that they have a history of committing crimes. Going back to Tanya's story, that was really it. After that, she didn't say anything to anyone about it because why would she believe it? 
Thumper and those other guys, Mike Bohr and Roger Breckenridge, had a reputation that they liked to blow smoke and sound tough. So she kept the story to herself. But a couple of years later in 2013, after Victoria West was dead and Thumper was sentenced to life in prison, she decided it was time to speak up. This is where other central figures to the story are going to be introduced, and they all came in around the same time. We're going to start with the current Oswego County District Attorney, Greg Oakes. We've mentioned him earlier, but this was about the time he became a part of the story. I joined the office in 2001, and really, during the time that I was an assistant DA, I didn't have any involvement with the Gary Thibodeau or Heidi Allen case. Um, from a legal perspective, uh, there were a couple of occasions where information came out regarding uh, potential locations where they believed Heidi may have been located, uh, but unfortunately, we were never able to find her at those spots. Eventually, though, once Tanya Priest came forward, the Heidi Allen case and the status of Gary Thibodeau's verdict became the central focus of Oak's professional life. Really, I became more directly involved as district attorney in February of 2013, um, after I'd been in office approximately a year. Uh, that's when I first heard the name of Tanya Priest. And again, on a Friday afternoon, an attorney approached me and said that Tanya Priest had contacted her office with potential information regarding this case, uh, that she believed somebody else was involved. And so that same afternoon, I reached out and called Tanya Priest. Um, I spoke with her at length that afternoon. I explained that the assigned investigator wasn't working that day, or had finished for the day, rather. And so the investigator and I called her the following Monday. We spoke with her at length. And at that point, you know, we decided, or I decided, uh, that we wanted to pursue this and flew her up from out of state uh, to come back here to New York. And actually, you know, we booked the airline, we booked the hotel for her to come up. And, you know, that Thursday, she was here in meeting with myself and the investigator. So, and we went from learning of her name for the first time on a Friday afternoon to having her flown in and here in person the following Thursday. So now that Tanya was back in New York and in contact with legal people to tell her side of the story, Oakes decided to draw up a plan. First, he was going to get the story from Tanya and figure out where to go from there. Now I'll explain Tanya's reasons for coming forward as she described it to me. Though her reasoning is understandable on a basic human level, it complicated things for law enforcement. Tanya claimed she came forward because her husband had gotten involved with some men involved in a local motorcycle club, one of whom was initially a potential suspect in the kidnapping of Heidi Allen. She followed that by saying her husband started receiving threats, was stalked, and their house was being watched. He had also told Tanya that he had seen something very gruesome and that they were going to kill him. Tanya eventually came to the conclusion that she could not have a relationship with God if she couldn't come forward about James Dean. Tanya's husband, Wayne Priest, died on May 23, 2010, of a motorcycle accident. Now, Oaks is a well-educated man, and it is his job, as district attorney, to determine the validity of the information presented to him. This is how he interpreted Tanya's story. Tanya was really kind of the beginning. Um, you know, she was the thread that we began pulling on to look into this. And when we flew her here, she began to explain 
why she believed Jamesteen or Thumperstein uh, was involved. But in that same evening when we first met her in the first couple hours, she also started discussing the fact that she believed the same people were ultimately responsible for killing her husband a couple years before that interview. Uh, that she believed a motorcycle gang had orchestrated the murder of her husband and that the same people who had killed her, her husband a couple years before were responsible for killing Heidi Allen in 1994. Her story really strained credibility and very much seemed like a conspiracy theory. Um, and I, I don't want to demean Tanya Priest, but again, it just seemed very far-fetched and far-field. And again, we're talking with her in February of 2013. And I asked her, I said, well, when did this conversation with James Steen occur? And she pinpointed to, it was either 2006 or 2007. I said, well, Tanya, if you heard this back in 2006 or 7, why didn't you come forward initially? And she explained, she says, well, I didn't think it was credible. Uh, Thumper was often making up stories, boasting about things he didn't do to make himself sound you know, more important than he was. And she just wrote it off as him you know, making up a story. So I asked her, I said, well, when, when did your assessment of that change? She says, well, when he killed his wife, Vicki West, you know, I, I began to believe that he was capable of this. And since he had killed Charles Carr and Vicki West, that maybe he was actually capable of killing Heidi. But then I pointed out to her, I said, well, Tanya, that occurred in 2010. That was three years ago. That would have been the natural time for you to come forward with this and say, look, he also told me this. And I said, so it really doesn't explain why you've waited another two and a half, three years. And that's when she brought up the idea that she believed her husband had been murdered and that it was some grand conspiracy. And I remember the words she said, I figured if I did the right thing by the Allen family, that maybe God would open a window or door for me so we could figure out what happened to my husband. And we really kind of got the sense in that initial meeting that, quite frankly, she had raised the prospect of Heidi Allen and, you know, that case to get our attention so that we would focus upon her husband's death. And as it happened, I was the deputy coroner who was involved with her husband's death. It was very much a motorcycle accident. Um, Again, he was intoxicated at the time, uh, driving his motorcycle on a rural road in the county. There was no indication that there was any uh, untoward activity toward him. So we know early on, Oaks did not find Priest's motive for coming forward to be completely sincere. The next phase of Oaks' plan was he was going to have Tanya contact a woman who she was friends with in her youth to try and get some more backup for her story. That woman was Jennifer Westcott, the woman whose home Tanya thought Heidi's body was being brought to and disposed of, according to Thumper's story. But Oaks said Tanya screwed up his plan, and that ultimately proved to be a large roadblock moving forward with the remaining legal proceedings. When we met with her initially that night, uh, we tried to make contact with Jennifer Westcott, and we tried having her connect up with her through Facebook because they hadn't spoken in years, and it wouldn't be all that uncommon for somebody out of the past to make a friend request. Well, unfortunately, it didn't work out while we were meeting in the investigator's office, and so we called it a night sometime after 9 o'clock and said we would just regroup the next day. And... You know, we walked out, and Tanya and I actually spoke for a while in the parking lot. And 
again, I knew Tanya Priest in high school. Um, the interesting part is when she first arrived here that day, that Thursday, you know, I knew her as Tanya Wheeler in high school. She was a few years behind me, but again, I recognized her. And so we talked a little bit in the parking lot that night. And you know, while we were in the parking lot talking, Jennifer Westcott had messaged her back. Of course, at that point, it was well after nine o'clock and we weren't sure where the conversation would go. So I told her at that point, I'm like, don't respond. Don't contact her tonight. We'll regroup tomorrow. That way we can record the initial conversation and have that available. And she was very clear that we were going to regroup the next day. Uh, the next morning, a little after 6 a.m., I got text from Tanya Priest saying, by the way, I spoke with Jennifer last night, and here's what she said. And, and I talked to her the next day. I'm like, why? <laughs> you know, we, we were very clear not to make contact with her because we wanted to be able to record it. This initial contact between Tanya Priest and Greg Oaks clearly did not go how either of them had hoped. But there was still an opportunity for Oaks's office to be able to record a phone call between Tanya and Jennifer Westcott so they could hear the information they were told to expect. I acquired the tape of their second phone call in 2013 from Gary Thibodeau's lawyer, who we'll be hearing from shortly. This tape really speaks for itself, and we will get into the chain of events it caused later. Tanya has the higher pitch voice, and Jennifer has the deeper voice. Yeah, I just want you to know that, you know, I don't hate you for what they did to her, you know. Right. And uh, I'm sorry that they put you in the middle of that January young when it happened. Oh, yeah. He just told me that him, um, Michael Bohr, and uh, Roger had uh, taken Mike's van to the store and that they grabbed her from the store and they brought her to your house and um, he had said that you did flip out when you guys got there and uh, you know I stuck up for you and I don't blame you for flipping out and uh, basically that's you know what he had said had happened and that's you know it's not your fault though you know so I don't want you, I knew a long time ago I just didn't want you to think that I thought no, I, um... less of you I really, uh, in my own head, dropped that shit. Right. I don't know, probably about 10 years ago. Yeah. But it took me a while to get it gone. Well, how the hell did, why did they even involve you or even do this? Yeah. I mean. I don't know. Did you even know that they, this was Heidi that they brought there and that this is what they were going to do? Uh-uh. You had no clue that they just showed up with her? Yeah. What a bad position for you. Surprise scared the shit out of you. Well, they, it's not even, they didn't even bring her in the house. Yeah, that's... Get her to the man. Well, Thumper told me they took her out in the garage. And uh, me and Vicky at this point, honestly, Jennifer didn't believe him. And he said right. that they took her out in the garage and that they beat her till she died. I don't know about that. That's what he, that's what he, uh, he had told me. But, I mean, as long as you, that's all you know and everything, and, I mean, the only thing you said you did was junk the van with Roger, then I wouldn't really worry about anything. And you really had no part of it. And... It, it bothers me to talk about it. I won't lie to you about Well, I know, hon, but that's why I, I, it bothers me, because it's been bothering me since Slumper told me. I was like, no way. Jennifer doesn't know. She would have talked to me and Vicky about it, because we were all very close. No, I couldn't say anything about that. I never anybody. 
Why did that? Uh, yeah, they. Why was it? Why didn't you say anything? Because they scared you, hon? Uh, yeah. For the sake of time, that's all we'll hear. But that really throws a curveball into the case against the Thibodeaus. It adds another dimension to Tanya's accusations toward Thumper, Breckenridge, and Bohr. The part of the call where it is mentioned that Thumper and Roger junked the van with Heidi's body in it is another theory, and it contradicts the first story about the cabin. Jennifer Westcott never incriminated anyone here. She didn't say that her ex Roger Breckenridge murdered Heidi. She also doesn't say Mike Bohr or Thumper did it either. But Jennifer was very clear in saying that she would never talk about it because she was scared. I'd be scared too, and so would anyone else. We already know that Oaks had a hard time believing Tanya's motives were pure, but this phone call set the stage for what would be Gary's last fight to get it out of prison. Now we're going to hear from Lisa Peebles. She is a federal public defender, and she represented Gary Thibodeau in the hearings to give him a new trial based on all of this new evidence. I actually hired Randy Bianco to work at my office as an assistant federal public defender, and she had been representing Gary early on after he was convicted throughout the course of his appeals. And what happened was she was notified that someone had come forward suggesting that somebody else had committed the, the, the crime, and they had wanted to share the information with Randy. And at the time, since she was working at my office, she came to me and told me about it, and she also stated that the district attorney's office wouldn't share with her the information because they were starting to do their investigation. But the ironic part about that is uh, the woman who was reaching out to share the information actually reached out to Randy, couldn't get a hold of her because she was no longer in private practice but was working with my office. So Randy then in turn reached out to the district attorney's office because that's where the woman had been directed. From there, Randy basically told them she wanted to be kept abreast of what was happening. And um, they turned over a bunch of CDs and information after they followed up on some of the information. After that, I had an opportunity to look at everything and recognize that something didn't seem right. The woman she keeps referring to is Tanya Priest. But there is something important here that will be a theme going forward. We will hear plenty from Peebles and Oaks that directly contradicts the claims of the other. We're now at the beginning of their interactions with one another, but it's clear that the opposing lawyers were not on the same page. Another man who became a central figure in this case in 2014 is John O'Brien. He had been a longtime reporter for the Syracuse Post-Standard, and the way he got involved in the case, as well as the way he covered it, made him the subject of plenty of polarizing opinions. It took some time for his stories to start having the effect they ultimately did, but he was involved with Lisa Peoples from the beginning. So I was a reporter for the Post Standard, and I one of the things I covered was federal court, and I always would look to Lisa for some story tips, and she, she was pretty good, and she was knowledgeable. And early, well, early 2014, she told me, well, I have a story for you, but I can't tell you much about it. And that's all she left it. So when I hear that, I know it's got, got to be something big because I trust her. And I keep checking back with her. Then she say, okay, well, it involves the Heidi Allen case. But she still wouldn't tell me. And then finally she said, okay, come over to my office. I want you to hear something. So I went over and she played the Jennifer Westcott tape for me. And I just sat there and was stunned. And I said, okay, the Thibodeaux didn't do this. This woman knows who did it. 
without question. I mean, it's a woman who thinks she's just having a private conversation with a friend who had no reason to lie. So right there, I said, okay, I'm in, I'm all in. And um, I had told my bosses what's going on. I said, this is the best story we have going. Can I just do nothing but this? And they finally came around and said, yes, go for it. Because O'Brien became so interested in the case, it meant that the people of central New York were hearing Heidi Allen's name for the first time in probably a few years. Because the story had not been covered much, following Gary Thibodeau exhausting his final appeal. With the Post Standard and its online version, Syracuse.com, being the biggest news outlet in the area, once they started covering this story, every other local media outlet started covering it too. Quickly, I just want to state the impact of this. John assured me he never wrote anything without trying to get the district attorney's opinion included as well. But, having a well-known journalist covering a case can definitely sway public opinion. Now again, there were people on both sides. There were people convinced that Gary Thibodeau was guilty, and there were people who were confident that the taped phone call meant Gary was innocent. The comments on O'Brien's stories reflected that readers were committed to one side of the story. Either way, Heidi's family was not happy with O'Brien's coverage. Heidi's sister, Lisa Buskey, was one person who did not appreciate his articles because she has always strongly supported law enforcement. It's clear that the opinions of both sides had only grown stronger, and the dislike between the two sides was intensifying. We've gone through a lot of information, but let's just get some context here before we get into what happened during Gary's hearings. The long and short of it was that with the help of Lisa Peoples, Gary had a chance to get out of prison if she could convince a series of judges that these three other men were responsible to prove Gary deserved a new trial. As the case got pushed through more courts, it eventually became a panel of judges by the end of court proceedings in 2018, judging whether or not there was enough evidence against the people Tanya Priest accused so Gary could get out of prison. We'll hear more about Gary's appeals in the next episode. John O'Brien's coverage, as well as the information that continued to be released, started swaying public opinion more strongly in favor of Gary. It was obviously beyond O'Brien too, because there was other coverage. By 2014, Gary's health was deteriorating badly. He had lost the use of one lung, and eventually had to use a breathing tube. The Tanya Priest Jennifer Westcott phone call had more people convinced he was innocent. Things get complicated here, and to save us some time, I'll summarize it. The Sheriff's Department was the one in control of the questioning of Jennifer Westcott after the phone call was recorded, and both Oaks and Peoples agreed the Sheriff's Department dropped the ball to varying degrees. Jennifer had already said on the phone she was not going to say anything because she was scared. The Sheriff's Department interview of Jennifer didn't really gather any new information. Jennifer also claimed afterward that she just told Tanya Priest the information she did during their recorded phone call to get her off the phone. After her denial, that was pretty much the end of the line for Westcott being considered a credible witness for the defense. The district attorney's office still didn't find Tanya Priest credible either, and once the hearing started, Peoples eventually decided not to even call her to the stand. So in a legal scope, there was much less evidence in court than the evidence that actually existed. One thing that is really important to mention goes off the path we've been on for much of this episode, but it brings us back to Heidi. It came to light during this time period that Heidi Allen may have been an informant to the Oswego County Sheriffs since she was 16 years old. 
that changes everything we know about her. She was involved with people who were doing drugs, and then she would feed information to law enforcement. I don't know the extent of the relationship between Heidi and the police, but that would supply a motive for her kidnapping. It gives credence to the jailhouse informant story that was used to convict Gary Thibodeau, as well as a pretty solid motive for the three other men who were accused because they all used drugs. To paint a picture of how controversial this was, I'll point you to a story written by John O'Brien in late 2016. He had written that a judge once said that it was indisputable that Heidi was an informant, but four months later, the judge reversed his stance and aligned himself with the sheriff's department with no explanation. O'Brien had multiple credible sources who said Heidi was informing the police. A deputy dropped a card in the parking lot of the D&W that identified Heidi as an informant before she was kidnapped. The deputy filed a report about it in late 1994, and it was never used as evidence in the original Thibodeau trials, despite Richard's lawyer knowing about it, while Gary's did not. It's another situation where you have to decide who to believe. With that in mind, let's move on to one of the pivotal moments in this time period. After the official motion to have Gary's conviction overturned had been filed by Lisa Peebles in July of 2014, it was opposed by the district attorney's office. Peebles claims when the prosecution's motion was filed in October of that year, Oaks withheld information from her and argued against Gary receiving an evidentiary hearing. Then, a hearing was finally scheduled for Monday, January 12, 2015. I'll let both sides tell you what happened. We'll start with Lisa Peebles and John O'Brien. It was time and time again that I was kind of lulled into believing that the district attorney really cared about the case and wanted to do the right thing, because that's what he was telling me, and he sounded very sincere. But time and time again, I learned that that's really not the case, because actions speak a lot louder than your words. Um, and what he did to us, the district attorney, before the hearing, we were all prepared. I thought I had everything in a I thought, you know, we're ready to roll. It's a Friday, and um, the hearing's on Monday, and we've worked our butts off, and we've got everything... Um, you know, packed up and ready to go. And at before, right before five o'clock, I was asked to have my investigator meet his investigator at the Great Northern parking lot in the mall. And Dick came back about an hour later with a huge box, including all these DVDs. I mean, there were eight gigabytes of videos and um, it was 18 hours of audio and eight hours of video and 3,000 pages of documents that we had to go through before the hearing on Monday. He dumped on us. Two days. Yeah. Uh, including a polygraph of Jennifer Westcott where she failed the question, do you know whether or not these three individuals, Steen, Breckenridge, and Bohr, were involved in kidnapping of Heidi Allen? There were there was so much information. There were other people who had come forward to say yes. Um, Steen, you know, made incriminating statements to me about his involvement in Heidi Allen, or Breckenridge made incriminating statements to me. All this information, Oaks knew about back in July, in August, in September, in October, and we got it the Friday before the hearing in January. And none of this we could develop right before the hearing because we just got it and we were just trying to sift through and go through it. So needless to say, I was furious. Now we'll hear from Oaks to talk about what had happened that weekend from his point of view. One of the regrets that I've had in this case was the way in which some of that discovery was provided to the defense. Um, while the investigation was going on during the summer and fall of 2014, we were being given information from the sheriff's office 
Um, we thought we had everything, uh, but to make sure of it, we had reached out to the sheriff's office uh, a few weeks before the hearing and said, you know, please give us a copy of everything you've developed just to make sure we had of everything. Well, we received copies of reports and certain things that we hadn't seen as a DA's office up to that point. Um, and again, whether it was a miscommunication or what had happened. Um, so I had asked my staff to make copies of it and transmit it over to the defense. Um, at the end of the day, I'm ultimately responsible for the office. And in the week before the hearing, we realized that not everything had been turned over to the defense. And so I had worked uh, with my staff to make sure everything got copied. And I did reach out to Lisa Peebles uh, the Friday before the hearing to say, like we have statements, we have police reports. A lot of it was redundant and things that had already been provided or was already known, uh, but some of it was new. And you know, we did, you know, on that Friday, provide them with a lot of materials. Um, and I absolutely understand that it was overwhelming for them to try to review all that prior to the commencement of the hearing on Monday. At the very least, Oaks owned up to his faults here. Lisa Peoples told me it's impossible for me to understand the gravity of the effect that this event had on the case. She is right. But that's where we'll leave off for now. In the next episode, we'll hear about the effect this weekend had on the hearings, as well as the result of the hearings and where we are now. It will wrap up this era of the story for the people involved, and we'll hear from everyone about where they want this case to go next. Find out how it all unfolded on the next episode of The Heidi Allen Case, Central New York's Most Enduring Mystery. This series is produced by WRVO Public Media. It was researched, written, and hosted by Ryan Saldivando with help from Catherine Loper, Jason Smith, and Leah Landry. This episode was edited and produced by Mark Lavonier, who also composed and performed the music heard in the series. You can find this series online at wrvo.org and on iTunes.